Chris Briggs, Director of the International Institute for Facilitation and Change, and here today in the role of hostess of another Bonfire interview. As you may know, these interviews have been organized to celebrate the launch of a new publication called the Bonfire Collection. It's exactly that, a wonderful resource of the many articles, more than 200, that were published over several years online, and now we've put them together into a publication, and some of our authors have graciously agreed to share a little bit about their experience in the field of facilitation um, with us as a way of, you know, sort of in tipping your hat to the to the work that's gone into this, uh, to this publication. Today, I have the great pleasure of welcoming my longtime friend and colleague, Ben Fuchs, who, like me, is an expat, originally from the U.S., but has spent many years in the, based in the U.K. and working a lot in Europe and, and in other places. Um, his background is basically, was originally in psychology, but to that he's added, he's kind of a lifelong student who keeps adding <laughs> new skills and understandings, especially in the realm of organizational development. So, without any more, Ben, Hi. Hi, Bea. Thanks for inviting me. It's nice to be here. So tell us a little bit about how you got started in facilitation before we go into our main topic, which is conflict. <laughs> right. Well, that's that's a good story, actually. Um, I guess, really, I'd have to go back um, 20, well, more than 27 years ago. But 27 years ago, I moved to Findhorn, uh, which is a community in Scotland. And it's a community that uh, is quite a large community, and there's lots of groups in the community. Every work area, every function has a group involved. And all of the, the community is supported by guest programs, so people come there for an experience of community or to participate in workshops or whatever. You know, that, and that's basically the, the revenue stream for the community. The community doesn't produce goods, it doesn't grow food, it doesn't make crafts to sell, it makes its its living from as a workshop and conference center. So living there I sort of spent my life in groups, either uh, in groups of people that live there and were working together or groups of guests who needed facilitation and um, you know because my interest in backgrounds in psychology and personal development I was very interested in designing and running programs that would help people to uh, be able to communicate more effectively, have better relationships, resolve conflicts, uh, go deeper into themselves, find a greater sense of meaning and purpose in their lives. And so I spent a number of years kind of working with, with groups in that context. Uh, and I think the, the, um, my interest in facilitation really stems from, from those days when um, I recognized that um, doing things in group is, groups is quite complicated, that um, groups um, don't always do, uh, don't always behave in an orderly and rational manner, as I'm sure you know, <laughs> that uh, particularly with the internal groups in a community, because there was no real hierarchy uh, and decisions were more or less consensual, you had a lot of uh, long, lengthy discussions in order to make decisions, and uh, collaboration to do tasks required 
a little bit of finesse in managing different people's agendas and so forth. Uh, same with the the, the uh, development programs because uh, you know people come, they have an agenda of their own, or they um, they come on a program and they get certain triggers get uh, get set off. Uh, but either by the material and that are co that's coming up from the program, or indeed by each other in the group. You know, you find yourself in a group with somebody who reminds you of somebody or pushes your buttons in some way. So what I was finding is there was a lot of things happening in groups where uh, people's uh, behaviors were were kind of off-piste, really. You know, so they didn't follow the script. They didn't necessarily do what was expected. People would erupt with unexpected things at any time. <laughs> and a part of the job of facilitation and running groups wasn't just to design a nice workshop, but actually to be able to work with what's happening live in the moment when the group goes off-piste. And how do you how do you field and listen to and understand how people are feeling and what's motivating them and what their needs are in that moment and manage you know multiple agendas multiple needs in a group uh, and try to get the group to go in a you know in a particular direction whether it's to, to achieve some sort of task as a working group or whether the uh, task itself is, is development and, uh, and and doing some some workshop activities yeah, nothing like being in community if you want to get the full immersion treatment of, of what it is to live and work in groups and, and oh yeah absolutely it's a, it's a very good training ground I mean I've done I've worked in lots of organizations and I have to say that most of them are far more ordered and um, efficient in terms of people's time and getting things done than what I experienced in communities but they don't necessarily um, get underneath all the feelings that people have, they just get on with it. In, in community, there's an opportunity for people to um, express how they feel about things, which is where the growth happens. And so I think there's, there's once, once I realized that the agenda was people's personal development and transformation, and if we actually got a task done, that was a bonus, that made it easier for me. Yeah, and, and this whole transformation, especially personal transformation, is not for the faint-hearted, really. Which brings uh, us no, to <laughs> Which brings us to our, our main focus today, which is your experience in dealing with conflict in groups. Um, yeah, that was, a, a, I guess, over after over time, I sort of developed that as a bit of specialization. I became known as the guy that, that you know, kind of did conflict stuff. Um, well, and what, what, after all these years of experience with that, what have you noticed? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, it's still difficult. <laughs> People are still frightened of it, and I think there's, you know, um, what I what I've learned is is that it's a it's quite a complex thing because you're dealing with people who have different backgrounds, different personal histories, different relationship with conflict, different styles. Um, even different definitions of what conflict is. I mean, I've been in some groups where I talked about conflict, and people really looked at me like, "Well, we don't have any conflicts," you know. And it turned out when we, when I kind of, when we talked about it a bit more, in their world, conflict meant people screaming and shouting and doors slamming and you know chairs overturned or whatever. Whereas for me, it was much more subtle than that. It was well, what happens where there's there's disagreement where there's um, you know where people don't like what's happening and and perhaps they don't even say something because of the, the 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 hierarchy and the sense of perhaps of disempowerment that people don't even feel free to speak to me that's conflict 
Mm -hmm. It may not be a fight, but it is conflict. You know, and how do we have conversation? How do we courageously have conversations about those things in a way that don't escalate that conflict or bring about the consequences that people fear, but address the real issues? Whereas their view of conflict was something quite quite dramatic and and uh, and loud and explosive. So when they said they didn't have conflict, it took a little while for us to to understand that oh, we mean different things. Right, but that explosive kind of conflict can is one form that it takes. Yeah. Um, what are some of the other ways that conflict shows up in the group? Well, I think conflict shows up in lots of subtle signals. I mean, I think the explosive stuff, you know, is usually if you if you really ignore stuff and, and let it build up, sometimes you get those explosions. But a good facilitator will notice, you know, the, the what well, you know what you might call the weak weak signals long before that. And you know, if you keep sweeping things under the carpet, eventually you get a big enough lump, you trip over it. <laughs> but, what would be an example of a weak signal? Well, for example, um, uh, somebody gets uh, continually talks over other people, but nobody um, says anything, mm -hmm. and you can see in, in the, the expression in people's face that there's a moment where you, you know, where you where you're watching them. And the, the the signals they're giving are that they didn't like that, but they you know they 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 withdraw rather than say hey hang on a minute I wasn't finished or they didn't they don't take up the the challenge so so those are those are the those, that would be an example of a weak signal or somebody says something there's a bit of nervous giggling in the group and then it goes silent and it's changed the subject mm. oh that's interesting I wonder. I wonder why we can't talk about that, or why that's why that's such an edge for the group. And I'm, you know, so again, you know, you might not necessarily demand a group talk about that in the moment. There may be good reasons why they're not talking about it, but it's a signal of conflict, isn't it? That's that's what I mean by weak signals. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I, what I'm looking for, what's what are the dynamics? What's going on? How free do people feel to be themselves? Because if you're not free, if you're not able to really say what you think, um, and you're not feeling confident that, that you'll be heard, that in itself is a conflict, isn't it? So when a group calls you in because they think they know or they think they have a conflict, what's, how do you prepare for that? Well, I guess well, the first thing is when people call me in the, you know, um, I'm interested in how they frame the issue. I don't often get called in and say, we have a group in conflict, could you come in and help us? Sometimes that happens, but often I get, oh, we need a team development day, or oh, I think we need some facilitation, or I think we need some some team coaching, and you know. So what I've learned over time is is uh, when people make requests, I I ask them, oh, that's interesting. Yes, I could do that. Well, but tell me what makes you think you need that. How did you come to the conclusion, a that you need that, and b I was the person to to help you. And what I try and do is, un is get to, because when, when people call me, it's at the end of a series of thoughts, isn't it? It's, it's, you know, there's been a whole conversation or a series of thoughts or a process that's gone on I know nothing about, and I get, people, I get their conclusion, which is they need somebody. And they need somebody to do this, whatever this happens to be. It's to facilitate or to run a workshop on conflict resolution or whatever their uh, conclusion is, their solution. I'm interested in unwinding the thinking a little bit to find out how did they get to that conclusion? What were the steps? What were the symptoms? How did they know they needed something? How did they identify the problem? 
for which well, I'm supposed to bring a solution. Yeah, and that gives me more. That that's sort of a diagnostic conversation for me. Is that is that what you meant? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and uh, do you? I mean, I've had situations. Let me just switch this. I've had situations where people call me in because they want me to give a talk. And what's the purpose of giving the talk? To make a conflict go away. A talk, a luncheon talk, something I don't right. really do. But they, the, the, the protagonists in this conflict are going to be there. And that's, and I really had to, this person was very keen and had in my magical powers <laughs> to be able to dissolve this conflict by talking in general about I don't know what. I said right. no and said no unless we can sit down with the parties and they're willing to work on this together there's no way I'm going to stand up there <laughs> well yeah, yeah I mean you know people always want the pain-free solution <laughs> true you know, like, you know it, it, it's like you know if you had that you know you, you people would do it right yeah it's it's they we we avoid the the the, the uncomfortable work that's involved. And it is uncomfortable to face into conflict. It is uncomfortable to have those conversations. There's a reason why we've avoided them. Right? Sometimes we feel unskilled, sometimes we're frightened of the consequences. So there's you know there's always reasons why, but in the end if we want to resolve something, we need to face into that. And we might need help and support to do that, but we need to face into it. It's it's a bit like, you know, um, to use to use a health analogy, if I want to, if I want to lose weight, you know, my doctor will tell me, you know, eat less, exercise more, right? This isn't a revelation to me, right? This isn't new information, <laughs> um, but I always want to avoid that, you know. It's like, no, there must be some secret, some magic pill, you know, some something that where I don't have to do the hard work of eat less, exercise more, you know. <laughs> but I think there's something, you know, in relationship work or conflict work, you know, you do have to address some of the issues. Well, I mean, what I've watched you at work with groups, you're brilliant at it, and one of the things that you do um, that you've just mentioned a few times in this interview is is that something starts going on and your response is, how interesting. I mean, where in the world did you get so, uh, what's the word, equanimous, you know, so you know, to just be kind of curious instead of freaked out when you're faced with conflict. Well, I think curiosity is one of the one of the meta skills of facilitation because it does two things. One is it um, uh, it invites everybody to be just as they are. You don't have to be different. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to be your best self. It's just I'm just interested in people and all their complexity and all their beauty and messiness and so forth, you know. And I think it does two things. One is it, it kind of, um, it lowers the edge a little bit for people to engage because there isn't, they're, they're, hopefully they're not fearing my judgment. You know, mm. there's a, I, I like the, the, there's a line Rumi says where he says, uh, out there beyond, uh, beyond our ideas of wrongdoing and right doing there is a field I'll meet you there I love that one <laughs> I love that and and so for me it's about creating that field where we can meet each other beyond that judgment of right and wrong good and bad right where it just is mm -hmm. and hopefully by that you know by curi through curiosity 
um, and understanding, really deep listening and understanding people and understanding why they are the way they are and what's behind what looks like difficult behaviors or whatever is are strongly held values, you know, deep-seated needs, um, passions and beliefs and all that stuff. And, you know, it's like people don't get up in the morning and say, today I'm going to be a really difficult person. Well, most people don't. You know, they get up fighting for what they believe in. Other people might experience them as difficult. You know? so, so how do we get to where we can have those deeper conversations and get beyond the presenting issues to what really matters to people without judgment, without... Um, you know, without having to be right, or even without having to be consistent. I mean, in the article that I, I talk about this idea of three levels of consciousness, obviously there's that shorthand for we're multi-leveled, but, you know, at, at a kind of more, at a, at a level of cognitive complexity that um, uh, Robert Kagan would call the postmodern mindset, I can recognize that I don't have to be completely consistent, even in myself, that I can disagree with myself, I can hold different points of view, and that's okay. You know, that's part of being a complex human being. Exactly. Now, I wonder if you get, this has happened to me, and I'm wondering if it's happened to you, that's, you know, I'm very often in the role of facilitator, where I'm trying to be uh, somewhat neutral, not unmoved, you know, not mm -hmm. uh, like a stone in the middle of the room, but mm -hmm. not take... Um, sides or to take every side in a certain way so that people feel heard but mm -hmm. then when I am then it turns out that sometimes I'm with the same people in, or as a participant and then yeah. they're not expecting me to <laughs> such a, you know obstreperous participant in <laughs> have strong feelings yeah. and so on does that happen to you um uh, I think we don't. Since I don't live in community anymore, probably less. <laughs> but I recognize the syndrome from when I lived at Fenway. Now these days, my personal life and my work life are, you know, more or less separate. Um, at least with the client-facing work. I mean, with my colleagues, that's different. But we expect each other to, you know, to to be um, human. You know. <laughs> well, and 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 you know, we, we're we're warts and all kind of thing. Right. Sure. Okay. Yeah. Well, going back to the model that you present in the article that is yeah. in, in the Bonfire Collection, um, you talk about you know the one level which is this more emotional, visceral, sometimes violent kind of eruption of conflict, and then you talk about the kind that's a little more you know rational and let's talk about this and find a solution, and then you talk about the one that I find the most interesting actually, which is looking you know, at the conflict more from a systemic level. Can you talk about that for a bit? Sure, that's my favorite one. <laughs> oh, well, there we go. <laughs> Mine too. <laughs> um, because I think it's, it's interesting that, that because when, we're, when we look at things systemically, yeah, then, then one of the ways to understand conflict is that um, this, uh, there are, there are th uh, contradictions or um, tensions within a system, you know? sometimes necessarily so. You know? And those things get played out. And the way they get played out is through people who end up in roles. You know? So classically in, in organizations, uh, different roles will find one another difficult. And you can swap the individuals around and you still find, you know, so, so the... Um, for example, in, in, in retail, 
uh, the marketing people and the people in commercial, you know, typically there's a tension because commercial is interested in, in, in margin, and profit margin, whereas marketing is interested in volume of sales. So they have different drivers and different agendas. They're 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 rewarded for for the thing they're responsible for, but they kind of you know they, it, you know, they 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 have uh, opposing um, needs in that sense. Mm -hmm. One to be successful, it's seen as a threat to the other, right? But systemically, the whole thing's set up to create that balance between the two. It's fascinating to me that every organizational setting that I'm in suffers from this um, lack of communication. I mean, we sometimes call it the silos and things like that, but it doesn't matter, you know, in academia, in, in the social sector, and, and yeah. certainly in business, that's, that's rampant. And it seems to me to be a very, uh, a field where facilitation can do a lot to help any organization just talk to itself. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And I think there's, because people's, Drivers, what what motivates them individually, um, and particularly their you know the incentive schemes and in organizations often often um, orient people towards their own agenda, uh, which makes collaboration more difficult, which which breeds mistrust of other agendas and so forth. Because in a sense, they're they're fighting for their territory, um, which kind of works against organizational goals as a whole. Yeah. Right. Uh, so, so I think it's interesting that we set up, you know, we, we set up organizations with a purpose, and then in the complexity of running the organization, we break it down into 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 chunks called, you know, divisions or departments or whatever. And then when each one of those has its own kind of um, um, drivers and and uh, key performance indicators and all the things that they're oriented around they end up in exactly what you what you describe so I think getting those sorts of conversations about trying to understand problems systemically rather than because the, the, the challenge of course is you start thinking that other person in that you know is making my life difficult and actually they're just doing what they do they're okay. part of the system you know the system you know needs them to do what they do just as much as it needs you to do what you do Right. I wonder before we close if you could just give us an example of an organization that uh, or group where you've had some success bringing the various voices and, and, and sections together to listen to each other in a new way. Um, yeah, actually, I did a I did a piece of work with a, um, uh, uh, the IT division of a of a of a big organization and. Um, Met all the people in management roles, and part of it was really just getting people to to talk with them, talk with the whole in a sense, get the system talking to itself. So one, so the first thing we did was getting the getting people to sit with their natural group or team within their function, and to have a conversation about what what really matters to us as a group. What are our drivers? What what you know. Um, what do we think we're working towards, and what what uh, gets us out of bed in the morning, kind of thing? You know, what's what really matters to us? What are our key drivers? What are our aims? What what um, you know? What we think we're here for, really. mm -hmm. and and then also to talk about what we um, expect from the other functions. Mm. 
in the organization. And then what we think they expect from us as a group. Mm -hmm. What are our assumptions about what we think they expect from us. So we did that and we had them all in their teams in a big, big room. And then what we did was we got we got them to break up and so to meet with people from the different groups would form so so going from a um, a homogeneous team group to a heterogeneous group groups made up of all the different teams. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. And then what uh, what they did was each in turn each member of the team would take their group to the flip chart station where they'd um, where they'd done their work as their home team. So that was sort of home base, and they would take them to their home and talk them through the flip chart and say, well, this is you know, and kind of explain what it is where you know what really matters to us, what we're here for. These are the things that, you know, light up our life and these are the things that frustrate us. This is what we really expect from others and this is what we think others expect from us. And then just to hear some questions from the group. Yeah? Right. I imagine. All this is going on, you know, so you know, and then once all that had been done and everyone did the the, the, the tour, uh, we said, right, now go back to your home group and and you know sit in your original circle and have a discussion about what you learned. From that tour, brilliant. And yeah, so so you know, to because people say, well, I had no idea people saw us that way, or that those guys needed that, and so on and so forth. So it really built some understanding about each other's worlds. And then we just said, okay, so now think about you know what would you like to do differently as a result of what you just learned. So we started moving. Yeah. So that's just an example of where things that had been. There'd been tensions or conflicts or unresolved kind of problems for years with this, you know, just getting some some good communication that was beyond, you know, that depersonalized it and put it into the functional understanding of what it's like in each other's shoes and what really matters to people and what drives them. And we did it all in an appreciative way. There was no criticisms. It was about it was all sort of positively focused about this is what this is what we this these are our leading principles in this team. This is what mm -hmm. we think we're here for and what we're trying to do. Right. Of course, which is quite different information than when you think they're they're there to to block and obstruct our work, which is all you know, some of the assumptions that had been made. Exactly. So, well, that's so this idea that, that systemically there are leading principles and that different teams have maybe have different ones but also have them in a different order of priority. And I think it's really important. So when you when you've got, you know, if you if you've got you know your 12 kind of, you know, guiding principles whether you call them your values or your mission or whatever and they're all up there as a big blob on the wall, it's pretty hard to make decisions on that basis. But when you really get really specific and say these are our leading principles and actually this is the order of priority. Mm. This, you know, then you start getting really specific about and those conversations about what is the priority in any given time and why and why are people holding different uh, needs and values and principles as priorities. That's where you get to the a really interesting systemic conversation that depersonalizes it. It's an excellent example, Ben, because it really shows the importance of the process for getting at those issues. You know, I mean, for me, the facilitator's main job is process design, figuring out how can we yeah. help people have the conversations they need to have. Yes, indeed. <laughs> so, well, this has just been fascinating. I'm so glad that you were able to, that we found this time to chat together. Right. 
And thanks uh, for inviting me. Well, thank you. And we'll stay in touch as always. You really enjoyed that last interview. And I also hope that you're kind of hungry to have more opportunities to learn from experienced facilitators like the ones featured in this series. If that's the case, I have great news for you. The Bonfire Collection, a complete reference guide for facilitation and change will be available starting May 12th. This compendium of useful information written by working experts in the field provides the practical tips and inspiration you need when you're working with groups. The material is organized into all of our favorite topics, including facilitation, effective meetings, participatory processes, conflict, consensus, leadership, and more, so you can easily find the content that you're looking for. The Bonfire Collection will provide you with answers to your questions about how to deal with the challenges of working with groups, tools for increasing group participation, and inspiration for supporting change through your great facilitation. It's kind of like having a personal coach at your fingertips. The Bonfire Collection comes in three formats, hard copy, e-ring notebook, e-book, and downloadable PDF. All contain the same great information, and you can get your copy of the Bonfire Collection at a special launch price if you buy before May 30th. Add the Bonfire Collection to your facilitation toolkit as soon as it becomes available on May 12th.